Live from Cape Town, this is the Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Constitutional Matters with myself, Dakira Desai, for the fourth episode of our new exciting show marking the 20th anniversary of the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa. As a seven-part series, Constitution Matters brings to light a joint venture on progressive constitutionalism by the Voice of the Cape Radio, the National Body of the Students for Law and Social Justice, and the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution. In our previous episodes, we discussed the history of the Constitution, transformative constitutionalism, and the right to education. And in this episode of Constitution Matters, we discuss the limitation of rights. A reminder to our listeners, they can WhatsApp us on 072 238 or SMS us on 47913. Now in studio with me, we have Dr. Kathleen Powell, Dr. Tom Angier, and Sheikh Ihsan Talib. To begin the discussion, we focus on Section 36, the limitation of rights and how it affects Section 15, the freedom of religion, and Section 30, the freedom of culture. Now, Professor Powell, we know that the Constitution grants each citizen access to their rights, but what is meant by the limitation of rights? To answer that, I'm going to need to quickly sketch how any right is litigated. The limitations clause of Section 36, it's part of the normal litigation process for any right. Uh, There are three main stages to litigating a right. The first is to establish the various procedural factors which ask the questions, is the person who's bringing the application actually entitled to bring it? And is the person against whom, whom it is brought actually the bearer of the duty. So for example, um, a good example is it's, it's difficult to bring a right to housing against a private individual. That would be one of the cases where the right is simply not applicable, or usually not applicable. That's the procedural stage. The second stage is uh, substantive. And in that, South Africa is a little bit different from, say, the USA. The question isn't just how big is the right, what does it look like? and then working out whether the conduct or the law complained or violates the right or not. What we do is you work out the scope of the right, so kind of how big it is. Then you work out whether the law or the conduct complained of falls within that scope and therefore limits the right. At that point you simply say the right is limited. It's not infringed yet, it's not violated. Because there's a second step. Once you've determined yes it's been limited, you work out whether that limitation is, and the term is, reasonable and justifiable in an open and democratic society based on human dignity, equality and freedom. And then they they give you a number of factors that you need to consider when you try weigh up whether this limitation is okay. What you're doing at that stage is you are comparing the right of that one person against the interests of broader society, in effect. Um, It's called a proportionality analysis. Our courts tend to just do a general weighing exercise. Um, And that is why I think people think, when they think about uh, the limitation of freedom of religion, they will think of Section 36. However, when we're talking about freedom of religion as limited by other rights, other constitutional rights, we're not talking about Section 36. Mm. Because 
Section 36 is about whether laws or lesser, lesser laws or conduct can, can limit a right. They're not about how big that right actually is. And when you, when you have one right seemingly conflicting with another right, you're actually at the stage before the limitations clause where you're trying to work out how far the right extends because it's interfacing and conflicting with another right and you've got to work out the size or the, the scope of the two rights. And then just to be, be thorough, the final stage if you've decided that the right has been limited and then you decide that that limitation is not justifiable, that will mean the right has been violated. And then there's a third final stage which is working out what remedy you grant. So that's the whole story for any right. Um, when you're looking at the right to freedom of religion, whether you're going to work with Section 36 or not depends on what the other conflicting factors are. If they are rights, then we're going to we're going to have to do a more philosophical, grounded analysis of how far we understand freedom of religion to extend, how far we understand culture, equality, and the other rights to extend. Now, before we grapple with uh, <coughs> with tangible issues, Dr. Angier, some argue that the Constitution, which is based on liberal norms, is not consistent with a multicultural state. Um, what is your view on this? Right, so... Uh, Yes, I'm not an expert on the law, but I also have a philosophical background, so I'll do my best to grapple mm. the general issue. Um, I think that um, the uh, South African Constitution clearly comes from a particular legal tradition, and so far as I know, it's been influenced by, say, the Canadian uh, constitutional settlement. Um, so we're dealing with uh, a set of norms which are embrace countries way beyond South Africa. Um, and it very, very well might be the case, therefore, that there will be conflicts or at least tensions between um, those international norms and uh, local norms. Um, now, I take it that that's um, probably an in ineliminable set of tensions and and what our task will be is to work through them and try to come to some reasonable accommodation um, uh, so far as is possible yeah so uh, I think particular examples um, will help but uh, we can come on to those mm. yeah uh, Sheikh Hassan, if you could come in here. Uh, we know that there is uh, widespread Islamophobia around the globe, with many critics arguing that Islam contradicts so-called liberal norms. Uh, and many also have argued that, uh, and use this argument to support the view that Muslims in many communities should not be allowed to live in multicultural communities because our, our Sharia um, so-called, or they, they argue that our Sharia contradicts the liberal norms. You being an expert on Sharia or Islamic law, do you agree with this or can you or do you agree that Muslims or the Sharia can operate <coughs> alongside the laws of a non-Muslim state? Yeah, uh, thank you very much Dakira. Um, firstly this is a wonderful uh, conversation taking place. Uh, it's the first time I'm encountering it and I hear it's the fourth episode so I will be tuned in next time around. Our learned colleagues here are very honored to be here with them as well. Look, uh, from an Islamic law perspective, um, obviously the sets of, of, of laws and uh, 
I think the the the, the backgrounds and the, the the history of these two uh, uh, systems of law uh, is obviously different. Um, Clearly, from a developmental perspective, uh, I think there is probably the need for us to also view history and particularly more recent history in terms of how um, uh, sort of liberal law, so to speak, and, and liberal constitutionalism has developed vis-a-vis -vis the development of Islamic law uh, more in a, a, a kind of uh, sort of Muslim majority kind of context. Having said that, um, I think it is important for us also to note that, um, I guess like any other system of law, um, Islamic law is very much um, uh, a, a system of law which is uh, hypersensitive uh, to context. It is a system of law which allows uh, inherently um, for a measure of uh, adaptability uh, as well as a certain measure of immutability or sort of fixed sort of uh, notions of, of value, so to speak, etc. Et and it is obviously a very clearly value-based uh, system of law. So those are the kind of areas where, where there will be a, a, a large measure of, of uh, let's say, uh, unchangeability uh, when it comes to values, etc. But when it comes to um, uh, 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 procedures when it comes to um, you know the ability for society to be able to develop law in accordance with the development of society uh, there is really a wide measure of uh, flexibility in that regard and so we find for example like in a South African context where we have this uh, beautiful uh, constitution uh, we do find that um, as Muslims we are very very comfortable uh, living in, in in this kind of context uh, of course where the rights of, of human beings are and especially in a South African context where some of the fundamental values uh, that are foregrounded and highlighted are the values such as human dignity mm. as opposed to some other places where they place a higher uh, sort of value on let's say the freedom of expression uh, per mm. se etc and that is also because of our peculiar history and so those obviously are kinds of values which are universal and these are the kind of values which really I think all faith systems uh, are very amenable and in fact they promote and so given certain again uh, specific circumstances uh, the application uh, of those rights and the implementation uh, as, as Dr. Thomas had maybe also alluded to uh, there may be tensions in terms of the actual implementations thereof but in a, in a general way uh, we would say that um, the the values of 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 um, you know the the kind of value based shall I say uh, system of law uh, in terms of its implementation and application uh, is one which is really of of, of a universal kind and a universal type. Uh, it may find uh, certain tensions within, for example, a, a context like in South Africa uh, that have special references or specific, uh, mm -hmm. I think, reference to certain uh, uh, values and certain ethical kind of norms and, and standards. Uh, Dr. Kathleen, would you like to weigh in here? I'm interested in when we discuss this apparent conflict between liberalism and Sharia law, uh, it's nice to have an expert in Sharia law to speak about the values there and I'd, I'd like to ask in more detail about them because I'm also wondering what we're assuming the values of liberalism are. Mm -hmm. 
I it's a it's a white church that term and it, it's in in South Africa for a lot of our history it's been a dirty word um, in other areas it's considered a very positive thing so perhaps if we could be clear what we mean by liberalism it'll be easier to work out whether whether our our constitution mm -hmm. firstly whether it is a liberal constitution and secondly whether it accommodates uh, religious <coughs> minorities and other smaller groups mm. That would actually bring me to my next question, and I think I'll, I'll pose it to you, Dr. Kathleen. How does a state reconcile imposing liberal norms, or the so-called liberal norms, on a culture whose normative values contradict these norms? Well, I'm, if we're sp specifically discussing Islam, I'm not sure they do mm -hmm. contradict, and I think that was the mm -hmm. point um, that you made previously. Uh, but, okay, let me make some guesses as to what liberal norms mean. I think we are talking about the autonomy of the individual and the dignity of the individual um, that does not necessarily at the cost of any group because our constitution also protects freedom of assembly uh, culture and religion which are group ultimately group activities uh, i think the extent to which liberalism is seen as a bad thing in in my experience is because it's seen as kind of freezing the rights that people have in the situation that we're in. So a liberal constitution is seen as, for example, protecting the right to property, which will, uh, which will put people who already own property at an advantage and people who don't have property at a disadvantage. That's, that is what I've understood the objection to liberalism to be. I don't see liberalism and diversity as opposed. And I suppose the... Um, the conflict that you're alluding to is the conflict between the idea of human dignity being meaning equality and a value system which assigns at least different roles to different people and maybe restricts people on the basis mm. of their sex or on various other bases it needn't be only sex mm. but is that the only conflict that we're talking about is it about equality ultimately I think so. I think that in, in, in with, with regards to religion, everyone would like to be treated equally. Uh, and we hope that our constitution would then uphold that because I think post-apartheid, mm. uh, this idea of equality is sort of resounding. And we no, no, no minority or even no group within the country wants to feel as, they, as if their religious rights mm. are stepped upon. Yes. Yeah. But then the equality works internally and externally. Um, part one of one of the objections that's come against not only Islam but Catholicism and any other religion, quite frankly, that, that distinguishes between the roles that men and women may and women. may play. Um, one of the criticisms of those religions is that they don't have equality within the religion. Um, you're alluding to another aspect, which is that religion wants equality with. Other religions, yes, yes. But we're looking at equality on two different mm. tiers. Let's try to tackle that. Yeah. yeah, I think we can tackle that after the break, just not to break the discussion. Uh, so we take a break now, and when we when we return, we will continue the discussion on the limitation of rights.
Welcome back to Constitution Matters. I'm your host, Dakira Desa, and in this episode, we are discussing the limitation of rights. Um, before the break, we had quite an interesting discussion, and I think um, not to waver off too much, I think it became a bit, a, a bit too interesting for us, and we actually continued it during the break. Um, but to continue, there was a landmark case this morning in the Cape High Court, uh, which ruled in favor of the Neisner Muslim community for the construction of a mosque, which would effectively be the first mosque in the area and uh, this was after residents of 22 Rawson Street contested the Neisner municipality's decision to approve an application for the construction of a mosque near the town centre. Now in considering this case uh, Dr. Uh, Kathleen, how does the state justify limiting the rights of a certain group when, cul when the cultural practices are inconsistent with uh, liberal norms? I think we must distinguish this case from a straight discrimination against Islam case. There may well have been some uh, prejudice involved, but what you're dealing with here is the normal process that will be carried out when a public meeting place is put into a community. Um, there'll be an option for uh, for objections from, mm. it could be a bowling alley, it could be anything where people come together. Mm. So um, uh, in this case we are talking about a section 36 sort of situation yeah. where the municipality decide okay we're not going to have this because it's too noisy and there are too many people and, and these, these are the reasons cited in the case. Um, religion as such was not brought up that was brought up by the community that wanted to build the mosque this is our way of expressing our religion yeah. and and that is your right under the right to freedom of religion is the right to hold and express your beliefs so uh, what happened here was I think the case was decided simply on okay well is there going to be too much noise is it going to be too much traffic it doesn't look like there was a very serious weighing up yeah. of the right to religion against anything else it was simply handled as look these objections are not they're not tenable on the facts mm. uh, if the municipality had decided no we are not having any any mosques in in Neisner ever then we're talking a different story mm. Mm. in this case prof uh, i think the municipality in the first instance they yes. they have kind of been approving of the of the move it, it was the uh, some of the residents in the area who then obviously uh, raised a certain yeah. objections but as you mentioned the objections were of the kind where, um, you know, the whole notion of um, uh, 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 levels of, for example, noise, uh, traffic, etc., uh, etc. Et and so to the extent, even in the wording of, of some of the uh, persons who then commented uh, on this afterwards, uh, that those were things which were uh, put on a balance of what is reasonable again. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Dr. Anja, in reading a number of comments on social media following the judgment. Mm -hmm. I found that many residents in Neisner continue to be upset about the, um, the court's judgment. Yes. From, from a philosophical point of view, yeah. what does this case mean for a community like Neisner, which in the judgment, it actually stated that the, the Neisner Muslim community was saying that the community is still quite unintegrated. Hmm. From a philosophical point of view, what did this mean if this mosque is built and if the right to religion is practiced? Right, so I mean, uh, it seems to me that there are commoner garden issues that would apply to any 
mm. institution uh, building being built and uh, so noise issue would be one and that clearly in the, in the mosque case will have to do with a call to prayer. Mm. They seem to have dealt with that. Yeah. Um, so there'll be sort of common garden issues like that which could apply to any uh, community institution. Now, I mean, I think the interesting ones would be the ones that are really specific to the uh, Muslim communities, right? Uh, this case seems to me relatively uninteresting in terms of uh, reasonable accommodation because it's just about whether we can have you know, a meeting place. Mm. But there are wider issues to do with, and I think this is what, you know, non-Muslims are worried about, will be to do with what practices go on in the community. So, for instance, if there's marriage taking place which is polygamous, say. Now, that would be a case of real tension or conflict between legal uh, norms in uh, common law, Roman Dutch law, and Sharia law. Now, as I said, I don't know, I'm not an expert in either. <laughs> so I'm raising the principal question. Um, you know, maybe people in this community, I don't know, are, uh, have issues with polygamy. And they don't want people who are practicing polygamy in their, in their ambit. So, I mean, it seems to me those, you know, we, we mustn't be so pussyfoot around these issues. We should, mm. we should bring them out into the open and say, are there, is there anyone who wants to mm. be in a polygamous marriage? If so, can we accommodate that uh, mm. within our legal structures? Yes. Well, uh, yeah, sorry, just to come in very quickly then. Yeah. Uh, look, there was certainly no reference in, in this particular case to that kind of detail. Mm. And yeah. so you're uh, hypothesizing in this particular manner. Uh, is, is, is really uh, to be considered in the fact that uh, we have legislation in this country that actually allows polygamous marriages mm. uh, in the form of the um, customary uh, custom marriage yeah. uh, law, etc. So, so that is obviously uh, again a particular uh, practice and norm which the majority of the uh, or in, in accordance with some of the norms and customs of the majority yeah. of, of the citizens of this country. Uh, obviously it is, it is being confirmed and it's been established. Right. Um, uh, from the Muslim uh, community perspective, there's, uh, yes, albeit uh, this is not really a norm in a sense because uh, a lot of um, it's rare, people's practice, correct, mm. pe people's yeah. practice is, is, is informed by, by the society <laughs> in which mm. they live. But there are, there are instances like that. Mm. And whilst we don't have, for example, this is a long outstanding issue as well, which is currently back in the courts of law on Muslim <laughs> marriages <laughs> itself <laughs> becoming uh, legislated and recognized in the country. Um, that is an area where uh, certainly this kind of, of, mm. of, of legislation will, 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 will certainly feature, uh, albeit um, that it is obviously going to be somewhat regulated, it's going to be subjected to certain procedures and processes mm. itself, mm. which is again not um, uh, 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 antithetic uh, to Islamic law procedures. Uh, so yes, uh, there may not have been such procedures mm. in the past, uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, there is a prescription on mm. such kinds of procedures being introduced. So similar to what you may or may, in fact, I would, I would actually venture to say that the kind of regulatory uh, elements that mm. you would find in this particular instance is what you would, for example, find in some other Muslim majority countries, like, for example, like Malaysia, 
uh, Indonesia, for example, which would, I would venture to say, go a little bit further down the line in terms of establishing procedure than the piece of legislation that we've just re uh, referenced a little bit earlier. And may I ask a question here? The Muslim-majority countries that recognize and regulate <coughs> polygamous marriages, I imagine the purpose of a lot of those regulations are to protect the parties, and I'd imagine particularly the women within the relationship. Am, am I right? I mean, well, what is all that regulation for? Because one of the problems with not being recognized in South Africa is that the legal consequences which follow do not then follow. So, for example, for a woman whose husband dies, yes. there's certain rights to mm -hmm. his estate and rights to maintenance, things that, that would follow if she were legally, legally recognized as his yeah. wife yeah. Uh, would not follow. So. The regulation of polygamous marriages, what is the purpose of that? What are the main principles that are Well, you're, you're absolutely right. It would uh, speak to the whole notion of proprietary regime uh, that is followed and the mm -hmm. consequences, obviously, uh, from a um, uh, financial and proprietary perspective that would uh, be regulated uh, in, in light thereof. Um, albeit that the courts have already, in fact, um, gone ahead mm. and deemed a woman who was simply married in accordance with Muslim rights, uh, but having been a second wife uh, mm. in a marriage, to actually be uh, deemed wife, yeah. uh, to be a wife. And so, therefore, the uh, ruling that uh, followed therein after uh, was then based on the fact that she was deemed to be a a, mm. a wife in that union. So the courts have already proceeded. <laughs> the courts in, tend in to have way. to move ahead sometimes. <laughs> they <yes>. do. Yeah. <laughs> they do have to. So in our last three minutes, unfortunately, of our show, um, there was a case uh, a few about a month ago uh, where we found uh, in its first decision on the issue of women wearing um, of women wearing Islamic headscarves at work, the European Court of Justice of Justice in Luxembourg ruled the garments could be banned, but only as part of a general policy barring all religions and political symbols at places of employment. Um, Dr. Kathleen, how does the South African Constitution protect against similar rulings? By having the right to freedom of religion, which includes the right to hold and express your religious convictions. And that will include crosses and whatever other religious symbols one wants to wear. There are situations where um, the particular symbol could be... A, I'm, I'm trying to think of situations where... But I can't come up with an example, so this is not really working. There are situations where there might be practical problems mm. with particular garb or particular symbol, uh, you know, accessories, shall mm. we say. But generally, I can't see that ever happening in South Africa because the right to freedom of religion includes the right to express your religion. Mm. Right. So, but, I mean, you have similar provisions, say, in French law, but they also have banned the burqa because they think that there's this internal norm of equality that's been violated. So you wouldn't have any sympathy with that? No, I wouldn't actually. Okay. Um, it is problematic. I, I do, I am a feminist and I do have issues with communities which suppress women in any way and I, I do have issues with a burqa. But um, to have outsiders tell women that they can't wear a burqa, for me, is as much a violation of equality as having somebody within the community telling them that they must. Mm -hmm. I would be all for measures that increase the autonomy of women within that community, but not that uh, actually impose on them a norm that may not be their choice. Mm -hmm. And the other point, of course, is that for some communities, yes, there's, it's 
part of their religion, but it might simply be part of their culture. For them, it's modesty mm -hmm. to cover their bodies in a certain way. So, no, I, I, I don't support banning any item of clothing. Right. The, the, the issue of, uh, that you're touching on in terms of uh, custom informing a religious kind of practice uh, is, is very real in a sense because uh, we spoke earlier on about how uh, you know people's uh, sort of manifestations uh, of the expression or their practice of Islam will differ from context to context mm -hmm. and from let's say a region to region and geographical mm -hmm. space to mm -hmm. the other and so certainly especially where a dress code is concerned there's a lot of cultural um, influence that actually inform the ultimate expression that was unfortunately the wrap of a really interesting discussion. Uh, we thank our guests, Dr. Kathleen Powell, Dr. Tom Angier and Sheikh Ihsan Talib. Tune in to VOC 91.3 FM next week at 6 p.m. for the fifth episode of Constitutional Matters. Just a reminder to our listeners that the views expressed in this show is not necessarily the views of the Voice of the Cape, its management or its staff. You are listening to Constitutional Matters with myself, Zakir Desai. Assalamu alaikum and good evening.